does a column once a week there <clears throat> about this. And he, what he does is he gathers research that other people are doing around the United States on certain topics. Is that okay? Okay. And um, so he wrote this article called No Hate Left Behind, and he had some interesting statistics. Uh, and I don't think this applies to Canada, by the way. I think it is a, a uniquely American thing. 42% <clears throat> of Democrats 40, and 42% of Republicans think the opposition party is evil. Nearly 20% of those calling themselves Democrats or Republicans believe their opponents are not fully human and behave like animals. 20% of Democrats and 13.8% of Republicans felt the country would be better off if large numbers of the opposition died. 18.3% of Democrats and 13.8% of Republicans said violence was justified if the other party won in 2020. And the worst part about all of these statistics is that the people who are most informed about political issues are the people who are uh, the most apt to hold these opinions, not, as you might think, those most ignorant of politics. So this is, uh, has become an endemic problem, I think, and I just wanted to add that to, to show you how this has evolved, and we're seeing a lot about it. Just the last few days, we've seen a, on, a lot on this subject, too. So, Terry. Thank you very much, sir, for a very stimulating presentation, and I have heard you on other occasions, and I appreciate your unwillingness to beat around the bush when you have an opinion. So. <laughs> oh, I thought I was beating around the bush. Um, something has mystified me about the American Constitution, and this may, question may be a backgrounder to the discussion that follows. Most of the countries that came out of uh, British influence, <clears throat> whether it be Australia, New Zealand, or Canada, ha developed parliamentary systems that strongly yeah. resembled the British. And I've often wondered, uh, but the, I think the, the movers and shakers of the American Constitution also came out of Britain, did they not? So how did they, what forces were stirring the pot that they came out with this kind of, um, uh, looks like something a committee might develop? You know? <laughs> okay, here's the irony. Of course, the Americans are, are rebelling against the British, so obviously they want to do something different. But a lot of the reasons for the American Revolution have to do with the status and nature of British politics in the period before the Revolution. Starting in the 1720s, um, you begin to get the assemblage of factions in uh, the House of Commons and in the House of Lords. And these factions center around people sometimes, and those factions are sometimes held together by bribes and corruption. Sometimes they're held together by other kind of coercive techniques. By the 1740s, Robert Walpole has begun to figure out how to stitch these factions together into political parties that can command the majority. So there are a number of journalists in Great Britain in the 1750s and 1760s who write against this, what they see, this corrupt political movement that's going on. After all, shouldn't all members of Parliament be independent thinking and thinking of the nation uh, and the House of Lords too? So there's a strong uh, press against 
uh, what's happening in England and who's reading that? The Americans are reading that stuff. And they're saying, well, the mother country is going to hell in a handbasket. And so what we have to do is we have to be virtuous. So uh, the virtue they bring in is this, uh, <laughs> this elaborate system of the Constitution. And the idea of the Constitution is that, is that nothing would happen. That is the ideal. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it was still the idea that states would be the most independent and important part uh, of the nation, not a national government. So a national government really rides in on political parties. That is, and that's kind of like their, we're talking about the Wild West. It's, political parties are the Wild West of American uh, governance uh, in many ways. So I hope that answers that. Hi, Jim. Henning Mundell. <clears throat> So you've given us sort of background, and we know who's sitting in the White House now. And a Mueller report is expected to come out. Can you share with us your thoughts, how much of it is going to be come out in public, and what are the likely consequences for the country, not just for Donald Trump? Well, I think that's a very broad and good question because uh, uh, there are many different ways to look at this. The latest issue of the Atlantic Monthly has an article in which the writer advocates impeaching Trump. And I think that you could bring uh, terms of impeachment against Trump uh, relatively uh, easily. But uh, there are complications in all of this, of course. Trump could be impeached, but he wouldn't be convicted. The House of Representatives would present the case to the Senate, and the Senate, in its current constituency, would not impeach him, and thereby Trump might even become um, a martyr to the whole process. And then there's two other words, Mike Pence. Impeach Trump and get Mike Pence, who is, in his own way, uh, stranger than the current president. So there, there are complications uh, to impeachment, I think, that uh, make Nancy Pelosi, for example, hesitate to uh, jump on board. Uh, I was going to say something else. can't remember what I was going to say, though. So if I think of it, I'll, I'll come back to it. Or maybe you have some. Uh, oh, uh, well, oh, yes, the Mueller report. I, I, it, the, we've forgotten about the Mueller report. <laughs> he's, he's been there so long. Um, the, I, I have a feeling the Mueller report is going to suggest that or hint that Donald Trump uh, was, was close to an awful lot of these things, but there's no smoking gun. There's no direct, absolute link. And I think that's probably is the case for two reasons. One, Trump is lazy and not very smart. Uh, and the other uh, is he operates like a, a, a boss, a mafia boss. That's how Donald Trump operates. Now, this became a big, I'm going to go on with this. So now, now, that, now you've got me going. 
This became a big problem, as you may recall, in the mid-20th century in states like New York and New Jersey, where they were having trouble prosecuting uh, mafia bosses who didn't exactly order that hit or do that, exactly th that exact thing, but were clearly behind it. And so what they came up with in the 1970, I think 1970, is they came up with something called the RICO law. Racketeers and influence, I have it here somewhere, I won't. Anyway, the RICO law was a way to get at mafia criminals who, you know, it was nudge, nudge, wink, wink, uh, and to tie them to uh, illegal activities. And they prosecuted a lot of people under that. Now, right today, I think, I think I am confident in saying that New York prosecutors are spending a lot of time looking at Donald Trump and looking at the RICO law. And I think that he's going to be convicted under that uh, eventually. But the problem of impeachment is a, is a, is a more difficult problem. Uh, it is entirely a political act. And... Um, it, it, it may be, you got to just take your chances, maybe better to go to the election in 2020 and hope, well, not hope, work, work to overthrow them. Yes, sir. Um, my name is Donna Ryan. I, uh, I want to congratulate you on your talk. I think it's wonderful. And I, it's inspired so many questions in my mind. I should be taking your course, I guess. <laughs> um, one of them is um, we hear a lot of talk about the United States being a republic and very little talk about it being a democracy and I'm curious if you could help us to understand the difference well I, and I think you're right and I think it's a great bar barometer to use at any time in American history is to look at uh, how those words are used. In a period where it's referred to as a republic or relatively conservative periods, it just means it's free of monarchy uh, and of uh, established uh, authority or classes that hold power, aristocratic classes. And uh, you hear a lot more of the word republic now than you do the word democracy. Um, and of course, the U.S. Constitution was not a democratic document, not meant to be a democratic document. Democracy, again, is a consequence of, well, of the people, essentially, but then of the political parties who were willing to bring that forward. So I don't think that much attention is paid by the general public in the United States today as to what democracy means. Now, Obviously, democracy can't mean just one person, one vote, and it's all over, go vote, shut up, and leave us alone. Democracy is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing participation, and a democracy can expect, must expect, that its citizens are treated uh, equal in other areas, not just in the ballot box on voting day, that uh, there are other social equalities and even e Econ economic equalities that go with democracy. So that latter part is what um, the most right wing in the United States do not want to hear. I don't know if that answers that or, or furthers it, but I, I think you've 
you've sorted that out, so. Um, I guess if I may be asked, allowed Please. a second question is, um, in regard to a democracy, it seems that in some ways a democracy and in other ways there is quite a difference between the, um, democracy and um, the corporation, which is supposed to be working for a group, right? Well, uh, yes, and, it's, and including a corporation as a, as a person is, is this kind of, it's kind of an odd double representation. If you're the CEO of a company, you have the rights of a citizen, if you are a citizen, uh, and as do all of your stakeholders, as do all of your employees. Uh, and now we double up and we say the corporation itself is a person with all of those qualities as well. And by, by the way, it's kind of uh, the incredible Hulk person because of the corporation has enormous resources to do things. And if, you know, look at the Koch brothers in the United States. They, they win and lose elections for different candidates all of the time. They're an enormous power, uh, partly because they can spend all this money. Uh, I don't know if that answered all of it. Uh, Trevor Page, are there any serious reform groups that you are aware of to sort of fix or try to fix the dysfunctional system of governance you described? Or are we, and if so, who are they? Or are we sort of just set to accept a bit more of the same old, same old or perhaps the only thing that could change the system would be a war? <laughs> well, I hope it's not the latter. But well, mentioning that, what are we going to get instead? Of, can you think of some groups? That I don't would, know of any groups. I, well, I don't either. If you want to think of a group that, well, we'll say it's on the left, uh, would be the ACLU, which has done a lot. But they primarily work through court cases uh, and, and try to uh, work in the through the legal system on things. They're not reformists in that same way. But then when you think about all the groups that are organized to improve American society, you have the American Enterprise Institute, you have the Cato Institute, you have Brookings. All of these are right-wing right organizations exactly. who are primarily there to support corporate America. And to maintain the status quo. Uh, yeah, that's right. Thank you. I, Maybe war. Uh, oh, I hope not. <laughs> Hi, my name is Pat Greenlee. Um, you explained to the people at our table what habeas corpus meant, that it was um, you had to be charged or you couldn't be imprisoned. Mm -hmm. So if, I forget which president suspended that, but presumably it was reinstated again. How then does that relate to Guantanamo Bay when, when so many people were held uh, without ever being charged and they were held for many years? Uh. <laughs> Yes, well, most of them are, uh, most of them have been taken uh, in uh, an act of war 
and are uh, conducting some kind of activity against the U.S. government. So you lose that kind of constitutional privilege in most countries that have, uh, have habeas corpus. The um, Guantanamo Bay thing, I haven't thought about it in quite a while, but Guantanamo Bay, um, you may recall Barack Obama promised he'd close Guantanamo Bay when he, when he was elected and did not do so. Uh, and uh, he is to be blamed for that to some degree, I think. Uh, he's more to be blamed that he didn't explain why he didn't close Guantanamo Bay and let these become cases that could be heard in some other more legitimate jurisdiction. Uh, and that the reason he couldn't is because Congress refused to pass any of the money necessary to even start to close the place because it couldn't be done. You can't just, you know, pack up and, and go in a way. Uh, so it was made very difficult by especially the Republican Party to, to close it. And, uh, and of course, the number of injustices in regard to Guantanamo Bay is pretty enormous. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But I, don't, I can't really say much more about it than that. Hello, Dr. Tag. I'm Barry Rosenfeld. Can you describe what has been often referred to as tribalism in the United States? Well, uh, I think in recent times, everybody has been described as part of a tribe. So uh, tribalism has become a, a very widespread thing. That is the idea that you have a group of people whose only commitment is to each other and not to anything outside of it. Uh, and uh, I think that that has happened to a large degree because we are, well, in the United States, people are less social. Uh, and that's happened for a number of reasons. Um, we see it all around us in regard to electronics and the media and uh, social media and that kind of thing, which keep people just connected to their own group. Um, but I don't know, I used the word tribalism today and I'm a little bit uncomfortable using it too. I don't know if that answers anything or not. Okay, with regard to tribalism in the United States, is it based politically between two parties in your opinion? Between the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party? Is there a political tribalism in the United States? Oh, yeah, I think there is a political tribalism, but it may be defined even more, uh, chopped up even a bit more than that. So you might have a southern, white, uh, young man, <laughs> you know, uh, racist tribalism, uh, kind of the thing the Klan used to do. Uh, that wouldn't be just exclusively the Republican Party. In fact, many of them wouldn't like the Republican Party either. So there are tribal, there is tribalism that's not associated with parties too, um, but a lot of it has centered around those, and that's why Edsel's article here I think is so um, telling. Um, so, so Dr. Tag, is there a direct relationship between tribalism and the hate you refer to? Well, I think so. I think that's part of it, uh, and part of it is a, a lack of restraint. It's very easy to be quite outspoken about any number of things if there's nobody you care about who's listening and is going to disagree with you, right? Uh, I mean, it's the fact that we just have no communication whatsoever in society 
that, that, that allows this kind of thing to happen. Yeah. I'm going to take the prerogative of the moderator and ask a question. So recently we had a wonderful film festival called LIF, Lethbridge International Film Festival, and one of the films was Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11.9, in which um, he has little clips, little snippets of um, Trump saying things like, uh, maybe we won't have an election in 2020, maybe we'll just keep going with the president as it is. And there was quite a bit of support for that idea. <clears throat> So could you explain whether that is possible under the current um, constitution? And also when you say the constitution really doesn't matter if there's public will, uh, could that, is that a possibility? Um, you mean going all the way to banana republic status? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, no, I don't see, I don't foresee it uh, at all and I don't believe that uh, it would happen, and I think a number of constituent groups of government, government everywhere would prevent it from happening. Um, you know, we've bothered ourselves about Donald Trump an awful lot, partly because he's such an easy punching bag. Um, I've tried to get uh, June to accept my most recent view of Donald Trump, that he's to be pitied, um, that uh, he is, after all, a a wretched human being, and he knows he's wretched. Uh, he's a damaged human being. He never had a mother and father who loved him, I think. Uh, David Brooks had a good article in New York Times on that one time, too. He's, he's a man who does not know how to love, and he's never been loved. I'm beginning to feel really sorry for him now. Uh, all okay, well, I feel sorry for him. Pity him instead of, you know, all he has is money and power, you know. <laughs> but the real important things he doesn't have, so. Uh, he, he's such a minor issue in a lot of ways. The big problem is you just want to keep him from doing something really stupid. Uh, and uh, spending $5 billion on a wall is, is, is stupid, but it's not, not too... By the time they get around to spending it, it'll all go somewhere else. It's not going to wind up in a wall anyway. But um, uh, we need to quit focusing on him because he, here again, that's, that's that opportunity to use hate in politics. It's re he's really easy to hate. It's hard, it's hard to like him. Yeah. But no, I'm not worried about him doing something about my name is Andrew Blair. I would like to know what you think, I'd, what sort of difference it would make if there were widespread support for Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I just can't imagine widespread uh, support for Julian Assange, really. It's hard to imagine. But but well, uh, he certainly has done a lot of favors to Trump's group uh, by releasing Hillary Clinton's emails um, or arranging for that to happen. But um, I don't think Julian Assange is much in the American mind. After all, he's holed up, isn't he, in what, the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian consulate in London? 
uh, and he doesn't have a lot of room to roam. I, I don't know if you, you, maybe you, I should have you comment on this and find out what what you're what you're thinking. Well, I myself uh, I'm a supporter of uh, freedom of expression, and I, I see the situation with Julian Assange as being uh, very much against freedom of expression. Um, whether uh, what uh, Julian has done um, and whether he's um, in the American mind much, um, you may be right. Uh, but I do think that if there were um, a, a brighter light shone on uh, a number of things that are uh, kept secret in uh, the American political uh, scene, that uh, the brighter light would make for a better situation. That's my view sure. of it. So yeah. I, I guess I can pose the question, to what extent would you agree with that? Well, I, yes, I agree with that, and, I, and many people have suffered a lot because they have performed that role. And everybody thought Julian Assange and WikiLeaks was going to be that kind of thing. But then it became kind of a, a tool of his own uh, egomania, and it was pick and choose what things you, you want to uh, promote and release. So then you get into a much more difficult area, I think. Um, uh, but when WikiLeaks began, I think a lot of people were enthusiastic that this would keep government's uh, feet to the fire, uh, all governments in the world. Uh, but it hasn't turned out that way entirely. I guess. Hi, my okay. name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for cutting your Costa Rica vacation short to come back and speak to Sackville. Although I ran out of money, Knut. I ran out of money. That's why I'm back. <laughs> and I'm really happy that the warm weather finally followed you home. Uh, I have two quick questions. Uh, one is related to. You mentioned that uh, capitalism basically started democracy. Uh, do you see uh, the future generations thanking Trump for, for re the rebirth of democracy maybe down the road? And the, and the other question relates to uh, populism. Do you think that's uh, spilling across the border? We have an election coming up in Alberta. Do you think uh, populism is gonna affect that election? Most of what counts for populism is really appeals to authority, and it's appeal to authority in the 20th century version called fascism. I, I'm not happy with the way the press uh, uses its words, and when uh, they're talking about a duck, I wish they would use the word duck. So, uh, and, but they're too timid to do, too timid to do that because for years. Using the word fascist was like using a terrible swear word uh, for which your mother would be fair, always embarrassed at you. Well, it is a word that has a definition and it applies to most of them. It is possible that Donald Trump can inadvertently lead to a more democratic society. Uh, I don't think it'll be much of a contribution though, uh, really. Right now, I just don't see, uh, I just don't see a lot of hope. Um, the social media is all engaged in outrage and television. And uh, a lot of studies have shown that P 
people distrust institutions so heavily that uh, that that is not going to get turned around easily. And finally, um, young people uh, who vote, people in their mid-twenties on, have known nothing other than this culture of vicious attacks uh, against one another in politics in the US. Uh, so things look pretty gloomy right now in terms of finding a place where there will be a democratic revival. I mean, really what I would like to see is what happened in the 1890s and early 1900s where a reform movement began, the progressive reform movement, and it came after the Gilded Age, just like our age. We're reliving history in a way, and it's not pleasant. So uh, the progressives primarily were driven by um, uh, people who wrote about abuses, economic, social abuses. And, uh, well, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle regarding meatpacking. Well, that immediately led to a change in how you regulated food production. Jane Addams' work on settlement houses in the 1890s showing how immigrant life was, uh, how immigrants were not being treated to a level that they needed to be and that the, the social infrastructure that was needed to bring, to bring them along. Newspapers. Magazines, I mean, everybody read a lot of magazines in that time period, and then a lot of great magazines in that period, including Harper's, which still exists today. The, uh, so a lot of this came out of the press, and it came out of kind of serious writing in the press, and uh, politicians began to listen to these problems. The other thing they did is they began to listen to scientific conclusions on things. One of our problems today is that there, not only is there a distrust of institutions, there's a distrust of science. Now, I, I will admit, you can see science as a meta-narrative too, dominating all things. But science specifically, on what we know about things, uh, it really must be heeded, uh, and it's not, there isn't a group of people out there, climate scientists, who who are doing this for their lining their pockets or for their some kind of psychic benefit they're getting from it. Uh, so we need to have more attention paid to the facts and to um, complicated things. The problem is, if I can go on with this, this doesn't address your question at all, but <laughs> maybe I should go into politics. We live in a very complicated world. A couple of years ago, I bought this book uh, by Kate Raworth, uh, who is, the, is an environmental econo uh, economist at Oxford. And it's called Donut Economics. I hate her title. She uses the donut as a way of symbolizing what we have to do. What she does in this book is show you how complicated a world we face even if we want to face reform, even if we want to make changes that are going to accommodate nations and the world and your neighborhood. And these things have to take place at all of these levels. They have to take place at the local level, international level, national levels, uh, as she points out. And she says several times in this book, there are two things we have to do. One is we have to protect a planet, an earth that we live on, 
and we have to make it possible for that planet to continue in existence. The second thing we have to do is we have to provide as well as we can for the protection of humanity. Now, if we just kept those things in mind and started working from there, we would have a lot better opportunity of doing things. And she uses examples in this book of a lot of people who have done a lot of things in that regard. What we need to get is, what do they call it when you need the critical mass, is what we need. We need to get to some critical mass on this. And things will change very fast when you get to, to a critical mass. So I highly recommend this book just for people to appreciate from somebody who's not, she doesn't have, a, she doesn't have an ax to grind politically, but for, to see how problematic it is to change the world in the ways we're gonna have to. Join me in, in thanking our speaker.